fundamentally what we're doing actually is demonstrating for our young people that there's nothing wrong with who they are, that they're worthy of a shelter, they're worthy of home, they're worthy of care, they're worthy of love, and that they're worthy of a life of their choosing. Hi, I'm Alex Roque from the Ali Forney Center, and you're entering A World Gone Good. Well, hello, my name is Steve, and here's where we shine the light into the darkness to prove this world of ours still has some good to share. Speaking of sharing, you can help us spread the good by sharing this here podcast. Tell a friend or many friends about us. We love a good social media share. Subscribe wherever you are listening right now. Rate and review us each and all of these ways. Help more people find us and help make our world gone good just a bit gooder. And for that, as always, we say thank you. So many years ago, after I had just broken up with my ex, my then six-year-old nephew came up to me with a question he was a little shy to ask. He finally asked me, he looks at me and he goes, Uncle Steve, next time, can you just try to date a woman? Now, before I could even respond... My 10-year-old niece, his sister, flies into action, storms over, and she says, Jonathan, Uncle Steve is gay, and there's nothing wrong with that. We love him just the way he is. And my nephew bursts into tears, and I you know, thank my niece for having my back. And then I asked my nephew if there was a specific reason he was asking this question. And through sobs, he says, it's just, I have so many uncles. And I finish his sentence by saying, and you'd like another aunt. And he kept sobbing and said, yes. Actually, he said, yes, because he had a little lisp still back then. This moment was and is proof that I am one of the lucky ones. I have a supportive family. My sexuality has never been an issue for them. Unfortunately, not everyone is this lucky. As of 2022, 28% of LGBTQ youth reported experiencing homelessness or housing instability at some point in their lives. And those who did had two to four times the odds of reporting depression, anxiety, self-harm, considering suicide, and attempting suicide compared to those with stable housing. In all, we're talking about 4.2 million youth and young adults, all of whom need stability, all of whom could use support, and all of whom could use a family like mine. So how do we find the good here? My guest today is Alex Roki, who runs the Ali Forney Center in New York City, where every day they are doing that good to help LGBTQIA youth in need. Well, I think the best way to start this conversation is that Max Emerson told me to tell you hello. Oh, my goodness. Max Emerson is just such a champion for our cause and for all the goodness in the world. Uh, it's so wonderful to, to, to hear his name in this context and know that he's connected to you and, and doing good because he does good in the world for us and for so many causes. So, yeah, Max is definitely something we know and love and, and value. Tell everybody about the center. Tell my audience what it is and what it does in New York City. 
Sure. The, the Ali Forney Center is the nation's largest and most comprehensive organization dedicated to housing and caring for lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender young people. These are young people who are kicked out of their homes because of their identities, because their parents are homophobic or transphobic and can't accept them and, and refuse to accept them. Uh, each year we see over 2,000 youth who know this story tragically all too well. Uh, who have been denied love by the people who are supposed to love them unconditionally, who have been thrown out into the streets, and who've had to figure out how to survive. And it's a really awful crisis that we deal with that so many young people are thrown out by their families. And our work is centered around helping these young people rebuild their lives. We do that first and foremost by offering medical and mental health services really focusing in on the trauma of family rejection, on the harms of street homelessness, and then moving towards stability, offering housing and shelter programs, offering pathways towards addressing substance use, pathways towards addressing self-harming behavior, and supporting pathways towards career and educational development. If a young person wishes to continue in high school or middle school or go off to college, we're there to provide those services on site. And similarly, as it relates to career and opportunities for professional development, we're also there. And our goal is really on the surface to provide the young person with everything they need to rebuild their lives. And, and I, I like to describe it as what any responsible family would do for, for, their, for their child, for their young adults in their homes. And fundamentally, what we're doing actually is demonstrating for our young people that there's nothing wrong with who they are that they're worthy of a shelter, they're worthy of home, they're worthy of care, they're worthy of love, and that they're worthy of a life of their choosing, uh, and they need the supports to do that. What ages are we talking about, and where are they from? Are they from all over the world? Are they mostly from the New York tri-state area? The ages we work with are ages 16 to 24. Uh, anyone under the age of 16 falls into a, a, you know, the, the, the foster care system and the dependency system in the courts, and uh, sometimes are provided some kind of services, but not on-site or, or housing. Uh, and our young people come to us from all across the country and around the world. About 50% of the young people we see come to us from New York. 40% come from outside of New York, mostly the South. And 10% come to us from outside of the United States. Wow. And the name Ali Forney, who was Ali Forney? Who is Ali Forney? Ali Forney was uh, a young queer youth who at the age of 13 was, you know, forced out of his home because of his identity and, and struggles with his family and, and largely inability to care and provide for him uh, because of who he was. And he ended up in the foster care system where he bounced around for about two years and um, ultimately, at the age of 15, after really awful engagement in the system, he opted to live on the streets. Uh, he felt safer on the streets and in the systems that were designed to protect them. And this is tragically still very true for our young people today. Many young people feel safer on the streets than in any program that is supposed to help them. And at 15, when Ali took to the streets in New York City, he created community. Uh, this is in the late 90s when LGBTQ and youth uh, were not words you used together. There, there was no awakening or cognizance that you know there existed LGBTQ identities within young, young people in, in a way that was positive or supportive. And by creating community, Ali built 
home on the streets for young people just like him uh, who shared his experience and who uh, were scared and alone and were not for him and, and for his his care, they would not have had the, the, the support. And Ali met our founder in, 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 in when he was 17. And again, in New York City in the late 90s, our founder was running a, a, a drop-in center called Safe Space for, for Homeless Kids. And it wasn't an LGBTQ organization, but our founder is, is, is gay. And a number of our coworkers, some of whom are still with us today, were gay or, or, or allies who embraced Ali, Ali's friends, and embraced a safe space for queer kids like Ali. Sadly, in the late 90s, when Times Square was being cleaned out and, and the city became something very different, uh, populations were pushed into neighborhoods that were much less safe. And, and that's where Ali and, and some of his friends were forced out to. Tragically, Ali uh, was one of, of, of many young people who lost their lives in the streets uh, who, you know, did not have shelter or support system, uh, a city that cared for them in a, in a way that kept them safe and um, was failed by multiple systems. What was unique about Ali is his love, his, his care for life, his care for others. And he, he just, by all accounts, left uh, an impression and, and a, a belief that that his name should live on and that what he lived for in his short life should live on. And it was that five years after his murder, uh, Carl Siciliano, our founder, opened the Ali Forney Center in the basement of a church and uh, committed to his memory, committed to his life. We have done this work for 20 years. In fact, we celebrate our 20th anniversary next week. And, and in 20 years that, that we've opened our doors, we've been able to provide housing, shelters, and a host of services for, for 20,000 young people. Now, you're talking about building community, right? And that's a big thing that he started doing on his own, but he uniquely just knew it because he needed it probably for himself. And that's a really big thing for this center as well, right? That's correct. Uh, you know, building homes, building homes and, and, and community, even for ourselves as a homeless provider, we, we very much struggle with that. How did you all fall into all of this, fall into it, crash into it, get into it, find your way to it, whatever way you want to say, because everybody always has an interesting story about how it started. How did you get involved with the center yourself? So I've been in the nonprofit world my entire life. I grew up in a nonprofit organization. I know the work first as a client of a nonprofit organization. I was fortunate to have services that were there for, for me and for my family. And I went on to work for the organization. I was the first client um, of the organization to, to have a job and in programs and supporting the, the, the team. And that was, you know, the, the catalyst for my career and for my trajectory in life, that being able to be a part of something that helped me, that saved me was, was just vital. So I spent about 10 years working in programs. And then I went on to work in fundraising, uh, helping to, to keep some of the programs that I grew up in afloat. And uh, I moved to New York about 15 years ago, where I started working with a terminal brain disease called Huntington's disease, uh, where I was at for five years. And I was recruited to join the Ali Forney Center uh, about 11 and a half years ago. And I spent nine years in, in fundraising, I was the first director of development at the Ali Forney Center. My job was to build capacity for the organization, to build the footprint, 
uh, to enhance all the work that we were doing to build stability and sustainability. And um, about three years ago, our founder announced that he'd be stepping down and the boards uh, you know, posted the position for internal consideration and I applied. And I was fortunate to have been offered the position to lead this organization, which I've done since March 1st of 2020, which is just a few days before the world changed uh, at the pandemic. <laughs> yeah. Right. Speaking of which, and we talk a lot about that on this show, how did the world change for you and the center when the pandemic happened? And how have you evolved out of it? I, we like to call it um, a, a better normal. We're not, we're not going back to the new normal or any of that. We like, we, here on our show, we call it the better normal. <laughs> <laughs> I, I appreciate the better normal, you know, um, and that's all we can do, right? Is try to be better every day or try to learn every day. You know, the, the pandemic was incredibly difficult. Uh, personally, you know, I'd spent my, I want to say the better part of, of most of my career dreaming of becoming an executive director and leading this work and, and having been part of this work for so long. I had so many ideas of what my job would be like, you know, what, what day one would be like, what my first few months would be like. And, you know, it was anything but what I had hoped, you know, within a matter of days, we were uh, organizing a pandemic response. And at, at home, it was challenging because we didn't close. You know, we can we cannot close. Right. We are uh, an organization that provides incredibly vital services, including um, you know essential services that cannot shut down. So it was difficult to balance, you know, the the uncertainty of being out in the world and coming back home to my husband and our son and the fear of what, you know, in the early days, we didn't know what, where it was coming from, how, how you could catch it, if you had to wear a mask or not, if there were tests available and there was, you know, we're washing our groceries and, you know, buying a lot of toilet paper. Uh, we were not one of those folks, but right. that, that's, what, that's what the world was like. Right. And so, so, so it was difficult. It was difficult to leave home and, and to come back and, and to, you know, my, my husband turned into a school teacher and, and, was a sole focus of our of our son's world, and at work it was it was devastating. There's something that happens during the holidays that happened during the pandemic. During the holidays, New York City becomes a explosion of holiday celebration. Yes, you know, it, it, it is. It is abundantly clear that the holidays are among us in New York. Before you can you know turn a corner. The entire city, you know, in, in early November, before you realize that early, no there's an explosion of a holiday celebrations and decor, and people are coming and going to parties, and there's you know abundance of food and cheer and billboards everywhere. And during the holidays, we have the greatest occurrences of violence, of, of trauma, of crisis, of suicidal ideation among our young people, and the the one very clear, poignant. Uh, understanding of that is that our young people are reminded more during the holidays than any time of year that they are not welcome at home, that they're not worthy of a family of celebration, of cheer, of love, of joy, that their families are celebrating the holidays without them because of who they are. And it's devastating. And nothing was more parallel to that than the pandemic. The, the pandemic was a moment when 
our kids, like the entire world was called to stay home, to be indoors, to stay with loved ones, to stay safe, everything. That was the call, right? It was almost like, the, it's just like the holidays, like, you know, come back together with family, enjoy the holidays, celebrating holiday cheer. And that's exactly the messaging the pandemic was for a different reason, because there was an underlying threat. And our kids were not welcome to that. And it was the darkest days that we've seen at the LA Pointing Center. It was just absolutely devastating. Uh, what our young people were going through. And it's something that carried on into our, our coworkers, um, into all of us to, to know that our, our young people were hearing that message and, and were realizing they weren't welcome at home. And there was this young woman who um, had been in our program, had graduated and had gone off to college. And she was very proud to be off in college and we were proud of her. And when her school shut down and they sent her home, she didn't have a home. Um, she she very sadly tried to go home to her parents. That perhaps you know the the, the frailty of our life would change their hearts, and um, it was devastating that she wasn't welcome at home. It was like that for for a lot of the pandemic, the the the, the, the first few months. And there was an echo there for a lot of us who are gay. Um, and in the gay community, it is an echoing back to the whole AIDS crisis when it was at a, a booming, because it was an almost it was almost a mirrored response of who was in and who was out. <laughs> I, I hate to say it that way: who was connected and who was just choosing to willfully disconnect from something they didn't want to deal with. Did you did you did you see that yourself? Did you? I mean, did you notice that yourself? Yeah, it, it, it was definitely something that stood out to me in, in, throughout it that I that I was reminded of. There was this ad, there was like this like post on on social media, and it it it, it had like COVID affecting seniors over the age of fifty and folks who have health issues and largely killing the aging, and it showed this elderly couple sitting on a couch embracing each other by themselves. And there was this othering. There was this like, you know, who's in, who's out, who's a target, who's more susceptible. And I was reminded of of what we know of the AIDS crisis and how people were outed and how people were just created into different cycles and circles of who had access and who didn't. And it was just really, really devastating. I think representation is very important, right? And I think people need to see realities and truths. So I'm going to ask you something that you may or may not have, have any idea on or not, depending on what your what your watching habits are. Did you watch Pose on FX? I did. I oh, okay. did. Okay. A huge supporter of the center and, and of our work, I should say. Great. So for me, season one of Pose was one of the most accurate uh, portrayals of that time, because I lived through that time. You know, I was born in 1970. So I remember all those times and, and all those people and, 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 and being different parts of that. And I was just curious, how does representation play into all this for you and for the center and putting out the positive representations? Yeah. You know, I, I, I want to comment on what you just said, the, the, your experience with, with, the age crisis, all of our experiences were different, regardless of, of you know, our, our age and time through it. And for, for me, and I know for a lot of Latin and, you know, Spanish communities where there was homophobia at home, like there was for me, 
AIDS was used as a threat. AIDS was used as a, this is why you can't be gay. Right. die of AIDS. Right. And there was, you know, I had a, I had a relative who, who I came out to early and I was like 16 and she started separating my eating utensils oh my um, from, from our home, you know, where, where she, like she would care for me and I would go and she, would, I, I had a different set of plates and she would wash it separately. And it was just so devastating, you know, just, just how, how different cultures and communities and how homophobia and transphobia played out as, and weaponized AIDS um, and, and just scared kids. And it, and, and, and Sadly, it's still very true today. I, I, I've heard even as recently as in the past several months that young people are still experiencing that. You know, representation for us is, is kind of unique and different because we're dealing with, you know, intersections of, of, of different experiences from, you know, LGBTQ to homeless to um communities of color and there is a narrative that we all have as about homeless communities there's a narrative we have about lgbt communities there's a narrative we have about young people that don't necessarily line up together and, and so our, our representation you know showing up is is very different and 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 even in a community like new york city where you know, we are so pro LGBTQ and we're so fortunate to live in this bubble. There is a great deal of othering and of, 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 you know, marginalization that LGBTQ homeless youth face. And also, unfortunately, at times it's in our own community and it goes back to, I remember being in the nineties and I remember there was a bar in LA, it's still there, I believe called Revolver and the trans youth who would come in and I call them youth because I was like 20 to myself (laughs) those were the days um but the trans youth would come in the transgendered guys and women who would come in and they would be just like it was shown on pose and it really struck me the gay community didn't want them there and they would laugh them and bully them out of the bar and i would watch it happen and i'd watch my own friends sneering and saying things and i'm sitting here going we're all the same thing we're all in this together. Yeah. It, it, it's so devastating to see that. It's something that exists in so many circles still. And, and one, one really, you know, good example of, of, of how it happened in such a big way is when marriage passed in New York State, our waiting list at the LA 40 Center almost doubled within a matter of weeks. Uh, most of the kids were coming to us from New York state. Some kids were coming from outside and there were all kids who were pretty much telling the same story. It's legal now. It's okay to be gay. You can get married. I can't get in trouble for this. It's no longer not allowed. Right. And they were finding the courage to come out. Like many couples decided to get married and celebrate, you know, and which is awesome. These kids were hearing this message and were, were essentially forced out of the closet in some cases because our fight for equality became center stage in their living rooms. And there was victims to that fight. And the victims were not the people who didn't want us to get married. The victims were these kids who were hearing about, who were finding the courage or being outed and were forced out. 
and 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 we're experiencing some really terrible things because of our fight and one of the uh, you know the, the movement was so focused on marriage that when marriage passed on a federal level we kind of lost the momentum the donors who were fighting for fighting for equality and throwing their money at at you know marriage kind of went away and it was like wait a minute we've been waiting in line our kids have been waiting in line the trans community has been waiting in line and and, and there's no fight left and it was it was very much a, an example of, of what you're describing how there was just there was no space for other communities within this privileged norm of what marriage is i mean marriage is a privilege you know? Yes, and it's also not like problem solved. You know what I mean? Right. Like like racism is solved. No, it's not. It doesn't work like it doesn't work like that. But I think the other thing that plays into it, and we've spoken about it on the show before, is a great unifier was the internet, because the internet allowed. You know, when when I was uh twenty eighteen nineteen back in the eighties, I lived in New Jersey in a little town. I didn't know any other gay people. I knew that you could go to New York. I knew that you could go to San Francisco. I knew you could go to West Hollywood. I knew those things. I'd heard about it. But until I physically went and went there, but when the internet took place, right? And especially, you know, you have a handheld device where you can communicate with others. It's a great unifier. It's a great communicative device to open doors for people to go, oh, there is this place out there for me. There are these other communities. There are these other people. And suddenly you're seeing it in your own neighborhood and suddenly it's not as far away as all those places seemed. You know, I, I, there, there's a lot to be grateful for and thankful for the internet. Indeed, it, it did build community. It did, you know, connect us and give us outlets and help us see another world that perhaps was censored otherwise in our homes. It also did some really awful things. You know, it, it, it's torn down the walls to bully. Sure. You know, you used to get bullied at school as a queer kid, you get bullied when you were in school, but you'd leave school and, and that's it. It wouldn't happen. It wouldn't happen on the weekends. It wouldn't happen in your handheld device. And it kind of tore down the walls for, for bullying, for homophobia, for transphobia. And it also has created an immediacy of information that has a significant detriment to mental health impacts. As, as an example, there's data that says that every time that there is, you know, a negative news story related to trans folks or queer kids, uh, passing of a hateful legislation, passing of, 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 you know, bills like don't say gay, the, the engagement of it from young people is not necessarily through TV and media. It's really through, through the internet. And there's been a 400% increase in calls to suicide hotlines associated with those news stories. Right, right. And just the past year alone, you know, 50% of homeless, I'm sorry, 50% of LGBT kids uh, surveyed indicated that they seriously thought, that, you know, contemplated suicide. So, so there, there's a lot there. And I, you know, I, 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 I hate to, to, to damper the, the, how awesome the internet has been for so many and for the community, but I also just call caution to what we can do. And, and, and on that note, we can all have the opportunity to do good and, and to be allies and to, affirm identities in our social media profiles, like adding our pronouns and adding ally flags or LGBT flags to show that we're safe spaces. And in fact, one affirming adult in an LGBTQ young person's life can reduce suicidal ideation by 40%. So, so taking the internet with the good and the bad is what you can do to, to, to do good. And, and that's really one thing. Like what, if there's anything that we can call to action, I would say this. 
Well, it's and I agree with you 100%. It's also there's so much validation that is going on by every single one of us, um, whether it's Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, the news stories we read, the emails we get, the texts we send each other, even just the simplest ways we've communicated have changed. And there are pros and cons with all that. So I do agree with you on all that. And obviously, you know, you know what you're talking about. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to even try to go against that because why would I? Let's get back to the center here because there's three big things I want to talk about. First of all, one of the coolest things ever is that B. Arthur, huge supporter of you and your organization, and she left $300,000 in her will to the center. That's right. That's right. B. Arthur, unbeknownst to us, her best friend, uh, was volunteering for us. Uh, he he learned about us through a friend of his and would come out to the early days of AFC and, and met our kids and met our founder and would come out and make pasta and spend time with our young people. And he told her about our work and she was so moved and and, and so just disturbed that parents would reject their children that she did her last living performance for the Alley Forney Center. She actually flew across the country. She'd sworn off the code. She'd sworn off New York. Uh, however, she realized her platform and her ability to make a difference. And she, she hosted a, a fundraiser for us. And it was at the time, the biggest fundraiser we ever had. It raised about $40,000, her one woman show. And in her, in, in her passing, you know, she was so connected to AFC that, her family invited us to host the memorial service for us, for her. And we did. And uh, our founder committed that if, if we ever owned a building, we would name our first building after her. And, and true to that promise, we, we opened our doors of the B. Arthur residence several, several years after her passing and uh, in a building that bears her name and her story. And there's pictures of her there and, uh, her friends who connected us to her are still connected to us today and come for visits. And her her name and legacy lives on for her protection and care of our kids. And it's just really beautiful to, to have that legacy. Is there a Golden Girls room that's like pink and green? <laughs> you know, I would love nothing more than to really go all out and like have cheesecake nights and conduct therapy yeah, over yeah. cheesecake because that's really what it was. Um, but no, no, we don't. Uh, our, our young people have full domain over their spaces and what they'd like uh, their, their living experiences to be like. She Listen, she played a character way before the Golden Girls on Maud, which was a spinoff of All in the Family. And that was a groundbreaking, in-your-face, beyond liberal show, beyond anything they did in All in the Family. She had the first abortion on, on network television. Um, yeah. I mean, she didn't have it, obviously. Like, we didn't... It, it wasn't like actually shown everybody like it was a comedy <laughs> Keep it light. but they were the first to actually do that storyline and yeah, yeah so amazing so amazing and such great support and was that a surprise at the time to get that donation did you did you have any idea that that was left for the center no no there, there was you know you, you never know when you're left in, in most cases you don't know when you're left in someone's will However, it, it was something that was received with a great deal of grace and love, uh, knowing that she thought so fondly of us. And, and, you know, in the short time that she hosted a performance and sadly passed, that she changed her will to include us. And um, it's something that, um, you know, is just incredibly uh, heartwarming for us in our work every day. 
On uh, Tuesday, July 19th, coming up at the Tribeca rooftop, you have Oasis, a summer party planned. Will you tell everybody what that is and how they can get tickets? Sure. It's our summer benefit. It's an evening of music and performances and special guests. It's an event that was actually started by a group of friends many, many years ago who came together and said, we want to host a low ticket accessible event for the community to make a difference. And now for the cost of, for the price of two cocktails, you can buy a ticket that will uh, support our work um, and uh, enjoy a fun evening. And what's interesting is that this year we, we were hosting our event in a different venue. We were supposed to be going to Chelsea Piers. Uh, unfortunately, Chelsea Piers decided that they would be hosting Ron DeSantis and um, went against their values in our community and their commitment to LGBTQ people by allowing this hateful, fear-mongering, hate-mongering demagogue of don't say gay to, to be present. So we, at the very last minute, just a few days ago, pulled our event from Chelsea Piers, and we were welcomed by Tribeca Rooftop. And we'll be able to say gay there in a venue that we know aligns and values our community and uh, taking a stand for our kids and for all those kids in Florida who will be harmed by this legislation and, and, a, and a really fun summer party. I just read about that, and I uh, have spoken about this before. Like you, I have worked on and off in the uh, 501c3 world, I like to call it. I was a fundraiser and a basically a party planner. It was a fun job at the American Cancer Society. So I know how difficult it is to move anything <laughs> once you have it locked. I know how difficult it is to get your, uh, your deposit back. I know how difficult it is to change the insurance. So I applaud all of you for doing the right thing for you and for your community. Um, so I, I thought that was great when I read that. And I know Thank how hard you, and I know how hard it is, is what I'm saying, because I know it's not easy because you sit there going, damn it. <laughs> I, I have to say our event was less than two, less than two months away, less than eight weeks away or seven, I guess it was like six weeks or so. Uh, but it was the absolute right thing to do. And our community needs to you know, stand together or come together in, in um, sending a message that hate is not welcome and that our businesses that we that we give our money to should align with our values. And uh, you can't post pride flags on your social media and smear LGBT flags and acceptance on, on all of your channels and then simultaneously decide to host an event that is uh, hosting someone who's actually silencing freedom of speech and harming our kids. It's absolutely unacceptable. And we would have moved mountains and I would have canceled the event entirely if we could not have found another venue, but we will not be going to that venue again. Before we wrap up, I want to ask you a question. What do you consider a success story for what you do? Oh my goodness. There are so many success stories. And, you know, I realized that in this conversation, I've, I've kind of really punctuated some of like the really heavy stats and the really dark side of this work, but there's so much light and resilience and love from our young people. And our greatest success stories are, 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 are the young people who move into the life that they want for themselves and, and want to be activists and give back to the community and are connected. Like some of our board members who've graduated from our work, some of our coworkers who've graduated from our work, individuals who have gone through the, the, you know, devastation of, of family rejection and street homelessness and have come on the other side to make a difference. And these are, 
young people who are champions and, and, and incredibly dynamic, caring people that we're so proud of every day and that we, we get to call friends and coworkers and board members and supporters and allies in so many different ways. We close these shows with three questions. Don't panic. You know the answers. Question number one is the easiest one is where do people find you? Where do people find the Ali Forney Center and how can they support it? Sure. The, our website is a great way to find all the information about our, our information um, and ways to be involved. And also, if you're not in New York, there's a number of programs that we work with across the country. And if you're not in the country, there's also a number of programs that we work with outside of the U.S., that you can find on our website. So just click on aliforniacenter.org, get involved, and you'll learn about ways to support our local community or communities local to you. Um, ways, Other ways to get involved is tell our story, be an ally, serve as an affirming uh, beacon of, of hope in our community, uh, connect with advocacy initiatives. Uh, obviously, donations and supports are always necessary and very important. However, Everyone can make a difference. Everyone can get involved. Everyone has uh, the, the, the opportunity to come to the table with something. And uh, we, we really encourage folks to connect with the many different ways that they can support. The second to last question can go back to anything we've already talked about or anything you want to say. It doesn't have to be about what you do. It can just be what you want it to be. And that is, who inspires you? Oh, my goodness. Who inspires me? Oh my goodness, so many, so many people inspire me. I I am most inspired today by our founder, uh, Carl Siciliano, uh, really came to this work in a time when no one was talking about these young people and no one was, you know, paying attention. And, and Carl would lose sleep over, over this issue. Carl would take this fight so personally that it would, you know, give him ulcers and he would be devastated when there was a blow from the city or the state or the federal government that harmed our kids. Even before the work of the Ali Forney Center, the work that he was doing in safe space for, for young people that were homeless. And before that, the work he was doing in a soup kitchen, you know, just a person who committed his life altruistically to, to this work and started the Ali Forney Center without pay for several years. And, um, fought so hard for these young people that has created a movement. Uh, truly, the Ali Forney Center work and Ali Forney's name is a, is a movement that uh, has changed the course of LGBTQ youth homelessness, uh, not just in New York or in the country, but around the world. So I, I'm, I'm most truly and profoundly inspired, especially as we celebrate our 20th anniversary. And the final question, it's not even a question, just a statement we end the show with. You can finish it any way you like. It goes like this. Tell me something good. (laughs) Tell me something good. You know, today is we launched our Welcome Home campaign, which is to purchase a building for our transgender housing program. And it's the first uh, building that we will own specifically for trans young people. will be the second building that we own. We don't have a name for it yet. We really want the staff and clients of the trans program to name it. Um, But we have launched the campaign today and have a community of support behind it, like the folks from Million Dollar Listing, John Gomes, Frederick Eklund, Architectural Digest just did a story on it today. 
uh, Jace Cannon and so many others have, have come together to launch this campaign today. So that is something good that the world needs is knowing that there's a home for trans youth coming to New York City. Thank you, Alex, for sharing your good. Check out the Ali Forney Center and see how you can support their continued work and help build community. Next time on World Gone Good. We become addicted to safety and security and comfort. And it and 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 we keep overwhelmingly concerned with things like liability. And they keep us from doing what's right and caring about what's important and and, and it's it's baffling, but we're, we're, we're lost in it. John Dangler owns well-built bikes in Tampa, Florida, and my pal Lisa said, you have to have him on. He helps people by having them build bicycles. So I said, that sounds awesome. Go get him. And she was like, how do I do that? And I said, just send him an email. Tell him you're a producer on the show and you want to book him. And she was really thrilled by this. See how easy it is to just become a producer on my show? But back to John. John helps people in his community restart their lives by giving them purpose through work. And he is very, 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 very into work and has very, very, very strong opinions on work ethics specifically. So much so, he even has his own podcast about it. This guy and I have one of the most bombastic and extremely good conversations I've ever had on the show and I blame Lisa. Tune in for it. You are really going to enjoy it. Until then, be good.